This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Catherine I of Russia was the most powerful woman history ever forgot until her story was rediscovered by my guest today. In Sarina, Ellen Alpston charts the extraordinary rags-to-riches story of an illegitimate peasant girl who would become a Romanov empress. It's an epic story of war, seduction, murder and intrigue that makes Game of Thrones read like a fairy tale. That impression is only reinforced in Ellen's sequel, The Tsarina's Daughter, which charts the riches-to-rags descent of Catherine's daughter, Elizabeth. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Before I introduce Ellen Alpston, let's meet Marta, the serf who would become Tsarina. My beloved husband, the mighty Tsar of all the Russias, has died. And just in time. Moments before death came for him, Peter called for a quill and paper to be brought to him in his bedchamber in the Winter Palace. My heart almost stalled. He had not forgotten. He was going to drag me down with him. When he lost consciousness for the last time and the darkness drew him closer to its heart, the quill slipped from his fingers. Black ink spattered the soiled sheets. Time held its breath. What had the Tsar wanted to settle with that last effort of his tremendous spirit? I knew the answer. The candles in the tall candelabra filled the room with a heavy scent and an unsteady light. Their glow made shadows real and brought the woven figures on the Flemish tapestries to life, their coarse features showing pain and disbelief. The voices of the people who'd stood outside the door all night were drowned out by the February wind rattling furiously at the shutters. Time spread slowly, like oil on water. Peter had imprinted himself on our souls like his signet ring in hot wax. It seemed impossible that the world hadn't careened to a halt at his passing. My husband, the greatest will ever to impose itself on Russia, had been more than our ruler. He had been our fate. He was still mine. The doctors Blumentrost, Polson, and Horn stood silently around Peter's bed, staring at him, browbeaten. Five kopecks worth of medicine given early enough could have saved him. Thank God for the quack's lack of good sense. Anna Cripper, narrating Sarina, written by my guest, Ellen Alpston. Ellen, welcome to... My Life in Books. Thank you so much for having me, or us, should I say. (laughs) Now, it's important to say that we're going to be talking about Catherine I of Russia, who is not to be confused with Catherine the Great. Yes, I think that was one of the biggest obstacles. My girl, as I call Marta, or later Catherine I, uh, faced from the very first moment on that Catherine the Great is just such a dominating figure in Russian history. And in people's mind and imaginary, even somebody who knows very little about Russia knows about Catherine the Great. And that actually made my Catherine, 
my heroine of the novel Tsarina the more interesting for me. Now, we first meet Marta in 1699 when she's a penniless serf growing up in what is modern-day Latvia. Can you briefly take us from there to how and when she met Peter the Great? Briefly is very, very difficult because it takes me about 200 pages before she rose from serf to being Russia's first ever empress, first ever ruling empress. And equally, in a double Cinderella story, she witnesses the transformation of Russia from a backward nation to the beginnings of the superpower we know today. So it took me about 200 pages to make her meet the Tsar. And I think through all these 200 pages, the reader actually said, my God, how on earth will this woman who really suffers every hardship and every humiliation in the world, how is she going to meet the Tsar? This is just not possible. And these 200 pages really demanded all my imagination. Of course, I had I had the framework of all the research I had done. And this is sort of the step from fact to fiction, that you have this framework of a very stringent research because all these details have to be right. How they traveled, how they housed themselves, how they dressed themselves, what they ate, how they spoke. Reading Peter the Great's letters, they are an invaluable source. But in that frame, I like... Serena to move freely like a modern woman with with emotions and equally when I was a student in Paris I worked for a best-selling author as her assistant and she taught me a very valuable lesson by saying in order for the reader to love our hero or heroine he or she has to fall very deep and she falls very deep indeed until her fate leads her across the path of Peter the Great. She's a prisoner of war. She has been taken prisoner of war in the Baltic town of Marienberg. And then, yes, indeed, she meets the young, handsome, determined Tsar of Russia, the world's largest and wealthiest Ram. Dun, dun, dun! (laughs) (laughs) And she has had a terrible time. And the only way she has been able to survive is on her wits, living each day as if it was her last. She's naturally blessed by being very eye-catching, which gets her both into trouble but also helps her survive. But there's a kind of animal cunning to her which leads her to seize her chance when she can. Absolutely. She fights for what is hers. She's very loyal and she believes in family, she believes in friendship. So the fairy tale quality of her life comes through many times in the novel, even at the very end when she finds her family again. And again, this is true, one of the many true facts of this astonishing life story. And life is stranger than fiction. But her physical and psychological strength next to her beauty are just unimaginable nowadays. And yes, as you say, it, her relationship to Peter the Great was incredibly multifaceted. And their first encounter in that camp and describing this camp was a pleasure because even today, you know, an army of 100,000 men is a very large army indeed. But 300 years ago, this was a horde of an unimaginable size. And the Russian army, shocked by its sheer size, so when she sees that camp for the first time, um, all these men, who did all these tents waiting for their next marching order, that is a fantastic moment. And when she finds her feet and she realizes 
that she holds her own destiny in her hand for the first time because it's her moment to reinvent herself. She's not Marta the surf girl anymore, but suddenly she's in the tent of Menshikov, who's Peter the Great's best friend, and she strikes up a friendship with his lover, Daria. And people like her for who she is, and so she builds on this. What people like her for, this sort of, you know, practical, very crude humor, her strength. She's as strong as a horse. And as you say, she's very, very beautiful and as warm as an animal, as a contemporary observer said. And she is one of the very few people who is prepared to go anywhere near Peter the Great when he has his epileptic fits. Epilepsy carried a suspicion of possession back in the 17th century and terrified people. And yet she is strong and practical enough to be able to help him then. And that helps forge their relationship too. Absolutely. Peter the Great was a very traumatised person and a very strong personality, of course, not surprising to say. So at times while writing the novel, Serena, I had to put Peter the Great very firmly in the corner and say, there you stay and this book is not about you. But Catherine was not afraid. In my book, I give her a first exposure to epilepsy. So at that moment, she learns how actually to deal with a fit and a seizure. She doesn't deal with it in medical ways, but she deals with it with all the heart and all the warmth and all the physical strength she possesses because the life she had, she was not a dainty little woman. And even in the novel, I actually model her sort of on a young Sophia Lorraine, very a handsome woman, you know, strong boned, a strong woman. And so when Peter the Great suffers these epileptic fits and this man of seven feet tall starts, you know, thrashing around with his arms and legs and hitting and foaming from his mouth and having the most terrible um, contortions, she just takes his head and pushes it deep down into her fabulous cleavage and holds him there holds him, holds him, holds him, just until he calms. And it is this strength and this courage that deeply attracted Peter the Great. He who had been so deserted and who had suffered so much trauma, he had found a strong, true person he could always rely on. And this is a wonderful aspect of their relationship, much more than the sex scenes that everybody picks up on. Of course, they're sex scenes. I mean, they had 12 children. Where should they come from? (laughs) (laughs) And we shouldn't really be surprised that Peter falls for a peasant girl. He, in many ways, had very simple tastes himself. He was very hardworking and he also wanted to turn the world upside down and reform Russia and bring it kicking and screaming into the modern world. That's absolutely, you say it wonderfully, Red, kicking and screaming because Peter the Great rose at three or four o'clock in the morning and just sent out letters in all direction of the compass, in all direction of the sky, to his generals, to his envoys, to tradesmen, to other great thinkers of the West. And these letters are peppered with now, immediately, I told you yesterday, do this. So you just feel the urge that drove him, this awareness of his task, his overwhelming task, and equally how limited time is to make everything happen that he wants to make happen. So 
you are absolutely right, and many historians agree in that, that him choosing Marta first as a mistress, then giving her the name of Catherine, Catherine Alexeyevna, and finally marrying her and crowning her 20 years into the relationship, declaring her his, his successor without verbally doing so, was the ultimate expression of this wish to turn the world upside down. He celebrated hugely respectless orgies that were called the Drunken Synod, where he had, you know, half-naked or completely naked women with massive crosses dangling between the breasts, dancing. He had somebody dressed up as a patriarch riding on a donkey, blessing the crowd with vodka instead of the sacred water. So he really flew in the face of tradition and and everything that was sacred to the Russian people. So, of course, for the Russian church and for his own country, he was supposed to be the Antichrist. And to be a friend of Peter the Great, it was almost a prerequisite to come from very humble origins, even his best friend, Alexander Menshikov. Today, we still don't know where they really met and what Menshikov's origins were. The most accepted theory is, is that he was the son of a pie baker and they met when Peter the Great grew up in the foreign quarter, um, threatened by his, by his half-sister who wanted to kill him in order to get the throne of Russia for herself. And even when building St. Petersburg, the first building of St. Petersburg was not a palace. The first building of St. Petersburg was a wooden hut that Peter the Great built himself. He went out into the forest, he lobbed the trees. He cut them to size because he loved carpentry. He loved lathing. His ministers feared nothing as much than a night he had spent doing carpentry because it gave him his best ideas, best in quotation marks. And in that little hut, he lived together with Catherine. Um, they drank kwas, that very simple drink of fermented bread, almost like a sort of bready beer, you have to imagine it, and eating eating kasha, porridge. So there was no caviar, and there was, there was none of these fineries how we imagine it. And that was something I loved picking up on, the sort of the simplicity they shared, just discomfort, you know, of being together. And whilst this is very much a love story between Catherine and Peter, she was never 100% sure of her position. He was having affairs left, right and centre. He murdered her lover in the most horrible way and made her suffer the consequences. And really nobody knew whether they were going to live from one day to the next. Her, her survival techniques honed during her days as a serf had to come into play in the court at St. Petersburg, didn't they? Absolutely. It is an intensely Baroque story. And as you say, it, people are, when they read this book, they are absolutely shocked just by this you know, this zest for living and the way they party and the way they drank. And when Peter the Great launches a ship with 58 cannons, everybody has to drink 58 glasses of vodka there or then, or he will personally knout them. So it's sort of this lust for life. But imagine if you wake up and every morning you can be never sure if you will see actually the sun set on that day. I think you do live the hell out of it. So this is something. And it is true that for a long time, of course they were close, but she was still a former serf and he needed more heirs. So that is, of course, a, a red line that, that runs through this book, that he has a son and heir from a first marriage, but he's not very happy with Alexei. 
and he wouldn't mind having half a dozen other sons, but Catherine fails to give him those. That Catherine can never be sure of her position. And there's a wonderful turning point when Peter the Great loses a very important battle and actually wants to flee at night. So he, the great soldier, the powerful Tsar, wants to scuttle away in the cover of darkness, really like a rat into his hole. And this story is true. And there it was Catherine who stood her ground and said, you're not going to do this. You're going to lose everything you've, you've ever fought for if you flee and we will negotiate. And in order to negotiate, she gives everything she has. The only thing that can assure her future, should Peter leave her, she gives all her jewellery. And all her jewellery, I mean, we're talking a massive chest full of unimaginable gems, you know, pearls as big as chickpeas, every gemstone is as big as a, as a pigeon's egg. So she gives all that and says, you take this and you take this to your enemy and you negotiate with this, take it as a gift. And it was at that moment that Peter the Great felt he could officially raise her to be his partner. So he was, even though he loved turning the world on its head, he waited for that moment to say, here you see, this is a woman who can be my empress because she gave all she had for the good of Russia. And on his deathbed, with which we started this episode, her problems are far from over. She still needs to use that native cunning or her powers of survival to be able to take the throne. You say as it is, and my American publisher taught me this wonderful lesson by saying I want the conflict on page one. And the conflict is there right away in the opening sentence. She says, he's dead. My husband, the beloved Tsar of all Russia, had died and just at the right moment. So you right away have that conflict. You're saying, hang on, I mean, didn't she just say she loved him? And why did he die at the right moment? Yes. So even beyond his death, Peter the Great had them all in his thrall. He had them all under control and she does not know what is going to happen. And she has to... She has to count on that loyalty she has slowly built up in the 20 years by his side. So she counts on the loyalty of all his supporters, who of course want to that the gravy train continues. Because if somebody else becomes Tsar, what will happen to them? I mean, these were moments, a Tsar's death were really moments when, when, when fortunes were made or lost. So it's a fantastic moment to start the book. And as a writing technique, as we'll say later about Serena's daughter, is to look for this moment, you know, where things just click into place, these turning points of a life. And I hope that for both novels, um, I found them in, in the prologue. Well, yes, as you say, we will come on to talk about Serena's daughter. Catherine was to rule for just two years and then... Upon her demise, there would be another power struggle and her daughter Elizabeth would have quite a fight on her hands. Yeah, it's wonderful that you see that, Red, because she really, while I wrote the novel, I realised, God, she's living the inverse of, of her mother's destiny. So her mother, as you say, rose from serf to empress, witnessing the transformation of Russia from a backward nation to the beginnings of the superpower we know today. And Elizabeth was born 
to these unimaginable riches, the younger, second, incredibly pretty daughter of Peter the Great and Catherine I. What a heritage! What, 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 what parents to have! Can you imagine Peter the Great doing bedtime? It's almost as harrowing <laughs> as Henry VIII doing bedtime. So <laughs> you wonder about it. So, and so she was born to these unimaginable riches and then following her parents' death fell practically to a life reduced to rags and from those rags she rose to be a real Romanov. Yes, if we thought that Catherine I was a, a one-off as far as being a survivor and a hard nut to crack is concerned, her daughter Elizabeth gives her a very, very close run for her money. <laughs> Elizabeth was was born to be a princess and Peter wanted to marry her to Louis XV of France and really hadn't educated or prepared her for a life as the ruler of Russia. He gave her quite a free reign. She was a bit of a, a beautiful tomboy. Yes, it's very surprising for a man and a ruler who worried so much about the future of his country and educating his people and establishing what, what were the first schools in Russia, that actually these two daughters who survived childhood and grew into adults had a very uh, free, almost Rousseau-like upbringing in a way that they were mostly left alone in a big timber palace out in the countryside with a very rudimentary staff of a nanny and a cook and a couple of valets. And there they ran completely free. Did they actually learn to write and read properly? Probably her elder sister loved reading while Elizabeth abhorred it. So even this idea that his daughter, who actually was born out of wedlock because Peter the Great married Catherine I only after the birth of, of these two girls. So both girls were considered born out of wedlock, which came to haunt Elizabeth later when her parents died and the question arose who should rule Russia. Even the idea that she should be married to Louis Quinze, to Versailles, the world's most exacting, sophisticated, most vicious court in, in, in Versailles, they just laughed at that idea and they just politely ignored the request until they could ignore it no further and rather saw Louis Quinze just being engaged to um, uh, the daughter of the deposed Polish king, because at least she was a princess and at least she was Catholic, then see him marrying Elizabeth of Russia. But of course, to her, that came as a terrible shock. It was probably the first time she was refused anything in her life. And she went from being one of the world's most eligible princesses to being toxic to know in very swift succession when first her father and then her mother died. Friends turned to foes very quickly. Yes, and masks fell at the Russian court. We touched on the on the vacuum of power that shocked Russia at Peter the Great's death earlier. And really the throne of Russia was almost like a revolving door. It was orphaned three times in, in just five years. And yes, the, actually Elizabeth's claim was ignored again and again. Her sister had married a German prince and had needed to let go of her claim to the throne of Russia. But Elizabeth was always there, 
But as you say, she was on her own. She was almost penniless. Suddenly from being a Tsar's daughter, she had been relegated to just being the Tsar's cousin. And of course, all her importance failed. Also, another problem was is that Elizabeth had inherited her parents' sensuous appetites. And one observer put it very carefully by saying she doesn't have an ounce of nun's flesh on her body. So her reputation wasn't the best either. If anything, I find that Elizabeth combines the opposites that we link to the Slavic soul wonderfully in her character. You know, she grew up in all these palaces, but she actually likes camping. When she died, she had 15,000 gowns in her cupboards, but she loved dressing up as a man. She could have any chalice filled with caviar at any moment of the day, but she actually liked, you know, freshly baked sourdough bread. So all these opposites that make up her character are fascinating. And if you want to, she actually, through everything that destiny and fate threw at her, she became the first people's princess. Because Russia suddenly was threatened by the very thing that Peter the Great had brought in to save it. He had brought in all the Westerners for them to introduce progress to his country. But all these Westerners were obviously fortune hunters and they brought the country to the brink of demise and that was Elizabeth's chance. And in a lovely mirror image of her father's attraction to a peasant girl who was her mother, the two great loves in her life are also from below stairs rather than from the top echelons of the Russian court. Yes, the love of her life and the passion who emboldened her to become who she was. And Tsarina's daughter is really a fantastic love story too about a woman who finds herself emboldened by this almost impossible passion. It shows, yes, again, she follows her mother's footsteps and the love of her life was a simple Ukrainian shepherd whose voice was so tremendous that he was invited to join the Tsarina's choir. And it is said that it's there that she discovered him. And this man gave her the courage to, in the end, claim what was hers, her inheritance, the throne of Russia, even though it came at a very, very high price, a price she was willing to pay, but a price that also haunted her for as long as she lived afterwards. Now, you bring in a magical realist touch to this book in a dark prophecy that is given to Elizabeth when she is young that her fate and that of the Russian throne are intertwined. Was that something of your own invention or did you find that in your research? It happened while researching. Sometimes, first when I start my research and I'm not quite sure you know, how to start the novel, I mostly look for an angle or for a moment where things just click into place and you think, yes, this will make it interesting. And so while doing this research, I read more about that timber palace in which Elizabeth and her sister Anna grew up, Kolomenskoya outside Moscow, a replica of which is to be visited in Russia again. It's incredibly beautiful. It really looks like a palace risen from a fairy tale. There are all these influences of architectural styles from all over Russia. It's, it's, it's brightly colored, incredibly elaborately carved. And Kolomenskoye is situated next to a ravine, the Golosov ravine, which is said to be haunted. 
especially with stories of time travel. And then something else I did, I read a lot of fairy tales and myths because I find it gives you fantastic access to a people's imaginary. And I noticed that in the Russian fairy tales and myths, all the spirits are malevolent. There is no spirit that is good. They steal children, they lead travelers astray, they steal what they can, really awful creatures. And that tells you something about a people's relationship with their nature and the natural world with this very harsh um, express season, that very cold, long, dark winter, the brief spring, the summer that is this burst, this frenzy of festivities and fertility. And then finally the autumn, which is again sliding into these dormant months, if you want so. So I felt I had to bring this superstition in equally like an old world that continues to survive despite everything, despite the attempts of Peter the Great. And of course, I could not resist the temptation of saying that Peter the Great as well might have met the spirit when he was a boy in Kolemanskoye and perhaps traded away his soul. If you read Tsarina, you could imagine that he traded away his soul. So that was the reason why I introduced the Leshy. And um, the scene is is so strong, that, that Delphic prophecy where... She thinks she understands the sentences in one way, but of course, it's it has a completely different meaning. And only in the end of the book, she understands that that prophecy was not an enemy, but that that prophecy actually gave her the strength to survive everything fate and destiny would throw at her. Well, you you say Delphic prophecy, and actually reading both these books with their seemingly cursed household of Romanov. It is very reminiscent of Greek tragedy. And and yet this is fact. Some of the untimely deaths, the weird coincidences, the, the brutality would appear to be way beyond anything we could possibly imagine as really happening. And yet they are fact. This is history that you're dealing with. It, it is an amazingly brutal Byzantine court that, as I said in my introduction, makes Game of Thrones look like a fairy tale at times. (laughs) That's a fantastic quote. And the first thing that people do when they read either Tsarina or the Tsarina's daughter is actually opening Wikipedia and checking up. And then they're like, what? They're so shocked (laughs) that if anything, I've watered it down. And it's true that, and especially the Tsarina's daughter, the moment when death strikes once, twice, perhaps even thrice, is just so shockingly pertinent, accurate, and so swift and so unexpected, and changes again everything. You know, when she shares her first kiss with the shepherd, it's such a beautiful love story, how they meet and how they are in that monastery, and she says, after a life of quicksand, I stepped on firm ground. This is really how I imagine that love to have been. And he was her companion for her life. For the 20 years she ruled as an empress, he was always by her side. And they were said to have uh, married in secret. And even Catherine the Great writes in her diaries of when she was Elizabeth's niece-in-law, she writes, no man in Russia was ever as liked as him. So it's, yes, it's it's just wonderful. Now, since we are dealing in fact, it is not too much of a spoiler to say that Elizabeth does become Empress of Russia in 1741, and her rule carries on for nearly two decades and is 
still looked on fondly by Russians to this day. Yes, so she was really Russia's, she was the first people's princess, if I can steal <laughs> that phrase from Tony Blair, because she gave Russia back to the Russians. Yes, the Western influences persistent, and of course she continued her father's reform because she adored her father and she was very proud of his work. And if anything, she had acted how she did because Russia was threatened to actually fall under a completely German rule and be submerged by these Westerners who would plunder and exploit her beautiful country. So that's what she did. And if you look at, at the legacy beyond that, she was the first ruler ever to abolish the death penalty, which was immensely forward thinking. Had she suffered, had she witnessed too much cruelty herself? That what, what led her to this decision, this very unusual decision in the 18th century to say, on my account, no drop of Russian blood will be shed. Mind you, she says Russian blood, not anybody else's blood. But even when she takes her vengeance later on her biggest enemy, Baron Ostermann, who was a German who rose to huge prominence under her father, a very clever man, a very gifted man, who for some reason turned against Elizabeth and never saw her talents and her possibilities, even then, she uh, mutes his death sentence to banishment in Siberia. So this is her legacy. Her mother's legacy is to have sponsored the ships of Vitus Bering when he wanted to go exploring. So the fact that Alaska was for a long time Russian is actually thanks to Catherine I of Russia by sponsoring his expedition, very much as Isabella of Castile uh, sponsored Columbus. So both women have left tremendous traces in the Russian history and of course opening the door again for Catherine the Great. That is the last legacy of Elizabeth of Russia that she invited this destitute little German princess into the country to marry her nephew, a princess who was called Sophie and whom she baptized in honor of her own mother Catherine Alexeyevna. Now Ellen, as we've said, Catherine I and her daughter Elizabeth ushered in a century of female rule in Russia in the 18th century. And after Elizabeth died, there was another power struggle within Russia. And I know that you must have been tempted to go on and start writing the history of Catherine the Great, but I believe you've decided to go back in time for your third novel. Of course I was tempted because it would have been the logic thing to do, who comes next? But then, you know what tempted me so much about Serena when I discovered her story, aged 13, reading just a chapter in a book about Germans and Russians about this surf girl who rose to being Russia's first empress. What tempted me about her was that there was no other book about her, no thesis, no biography, no novel. I loved this idea that she was actually lingering in the shadows of history, almost like Tutankhamun waiting for Howard Carter. I felt Catherine the First was waiting for me and whatever I'll do later, whatever I'll write more, I know that Serena and the Serena's daughter will always be at the heart of my creation. So I almost felt I wasn't ready for Catherine the Great yet because I never saw myself as a novelist who would write the 25th novel about Anne Boleyn and, and Henry VIII, as fascinating as the story is and as wonderful as the Philippa Gregory novels or indeed Hilary Mantel's novels are. 
I would like to go where nobody has been before and I'd like to create my own worlds. And I had this fantastic quote of Nikita Romanov, an uncle of Peter the Great or an uncle of Tsar Alexis already, his father, who said in 1633, Romanovs are as cursed. Our men are as meek as maidens and our women are as wild as wolverines. And so I thought, what a fantastic quote. And why is he saying that? So yes, what I'm writing at the moment, book three of the Tsarina series, which will hopefully be a quartet of novels, even though I've got material for seven books, is I'm going back in time and it's a prequel to Tsarina. I am looking at the women who made Peter the Great possible. Now, I can't tell too much. I'm about halfway in writing the novel, but this time I've got two fabulous heroines complete. Uh, they're both really kick-ass, pardon my language, <laughs> but that's what they are. And we are witnessing this ferocious fight for the throne of Russia between my two heroines. And it's a pleasure to write. It's very interesting to suddenly have two people in whose head you are and in whose voice you tell the story. But it makes it tremendously interesting as well. Why do you think these stories have remained untold? I wonder, possibly, of course, the Tudors are for an English-speaking audience, fantastically interesting, because it's just very close. It's close to home. It's something people have heard about. But these are stories nobody has ever heard about and then they're almost shocked that they've never asked themselves how did Peter the Great come to be who he was? Uh, who was Catherine the Great? Who invited her in? How was it possible that she even had the idea of seizing power from her husband who was actually entitled to the throne? Um, equally, Russia is once more the mystery wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma or how is it that Winston Churchill says it? So it is just this behemoth of a country you have to dare to approach. You cannot do things by half measure. Likewise, my research, I, I researched for a year before I started, before I dared writing the opening sentence. I had no idea which world of Tolkienist dimensions would await me, would lure me in and would probably will never let me go. But I'm fine with that. You know, if this is my life's creation, I'm perfectly okay with that. So it's it's something, it, it's scary. You have to dare mm. and you have to dare my books. I, many readers say that they say this is not for the faint of heart. It's something that moves you. It's something you will never forget once you've read it. Do you think it's also got to do with the fact that even though we are witnessing very strong female rule. The overarching power within Russia is patriarchal. Of course, that makes this setup so interesting. How is it that in a time of a brutally determined patriarchy, we actually are witnessing a, a century of female reign, a century of female reign that was never repeated because it ended with Catherine the Goat. After Catherine the Great, there was never again a woman ruling Russia. But again, it comes back to that quote of Nikita Romanov. There was something in the Romanov genes. And in the Tsarina's daughter, she actually says it. Romanov men are of much weaker stock than Romanov women, even if nobody dares saying that aloud. And the fact that following Catherine the Great, there were so many male offspring suddenly is due to the fact that Catherine the Great's son was actually not sired by her husband 
but by her lover. So <laughs> there was access to a different gene pot and the male Romanov line actually ended with Catherine the Great's husband. We can hear your sense of ownership of these stories, your, your passion for them. You, you call them your girls. And I know that you were equally determined that the books should be brought to life authentically as audiobooks and had quite a lot to do with the selection of the narrator. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, it was a huge casting. So Belinda won, won the rights uh, for the audiobooks and I was so grateful because they are a fantastic publisher who go to great lengths to be authentic in their choice of voices. And so they found this Anglo-Russian actress, Anna Kripa, who just brings the stories to life with so much soul and so much stamina. And uh, Tsarina, she actually recorded during the first lockdown. And it's interesting that the books are published by Bloomsbury, who also published Harry Potter, because Anna actually sat beneath her stairs in a cupboard, <laughs> which she had uh, transformed into a recording studio, recording Tsarina. And an audiobook is something magical. I love listening to her. I love how she pronounces the words. And it almost, you know, it gives me goosebumps because actually audiobooks take you back to the old way of storytelling. You know, cue a thousand years back, cue back to the Nibelung and to Siegfried, the dragon slayer, beautiful Krimhild, the Rheingold, when you just had the bard coming to visit the court. Or minstrels coming to visit a village and there was no writing and there was no reading. There was people telling a story in the evening around a roaring fire and everybody listening, you know, being taken to dreamland. And this is what audiobooks are for me today. It's They are the natural successor of storytelling in its purest and uh, most realistic form. So far, we've talked about the books that you've written, but now it's time for you to share some of the books that you've enjoyed with the books of your life. So was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? More than one. If you allow me to go back a little bit, I grew up in the African highlands, which was, of course, the most uh, charming fairy tale-like upbringing I could imagine in these beautiful surroundings. And when we returned to Europe, actually very long and lonely years ensued because we moved to this tiny village where I was just very different and mankind does not like what is different. So I was a bit of a loner. I was being mobbed. I was being bullied. And my only salvation was the weekly trip to the library, which was in the next big city. And I kid you not, Red, I really came. My mother and I really had like a washing basket, an empty gray plastic washing basket that I still imagine. And I would just walk into that library, just wipe the shelves clean. And mostly historical fiction. And the one book that I remember reading and that touched me deeply was actually by an American author, I believe. Her name is Pauline Gedge. And it was called The Child of the Morning, about the Egyptian queen Hatshepsut, who likewise had never been intended to rule, obviously, as a woman, and was the first ever female pharaoh. And Pauline Gedge writes as a first-person narrator, and she leads you so much into the 18th dynasty 
of ancient Egypt, which is really high Egypt. The 18th dynasty is the apogee of everything that Egypt had ever created. The most beautiful frescoes, the most beautiful temples, the most amazing jewelry, the finest linen, the imports they had, the mysterious gold country of Punt. Where is Punt? Nobody knows today. So all that is Hatshepsut and all that I learned. And I think there I just fell for this genre of historical fiction. It's the one genre that gives you this triple E of education, of entertainment and of escapism. And it also engendered a lifelong love for ancient Egypt in me. So give me a ticket to Cairo and you make me a happy woman. <laughs> and is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? It's another historic novel, which it's not very original, I fear, if I'm going to say it, because after Gone with the Wind, it is the world's second best-selling historical novel. I'm only going historical here because I have to, obviously. And the novel is called Désirée by an author called Anne-Marie Selenko. And um, Désirée was the daughter of a Marseille silk trader who met uh, down at heels very thin, very pale, very small Corsican refugee and started feeding him with cake. And his name was Napoleon Bonaparte. And they eventually got engaged. Her elder sister married his elder brother, Joseph. But then he went to Paris and deserted her for Josephine de Beauharnais, who was obviously more of a power player, who offered him much more options for his career. So if he had married Désirée, he would have never become Napoleon, the Napoleon we know. But instead, she marries one of his generals. And later on, that general is voted King of Sweden. So the Bernadots who rule Sweden today, King Carl Gustav, is actually a descendant of this uh, Jean-Baptiste Bernadotte, this general and Désirée. And the book is written in form of a diary and she just has the most wonderful voice. She's so sweet and she's so upright and she's so full of feminine wiles in the same time. She's a little bit like Audrey Hepburn in a Roman holiday. So a wonderful character and a little bit like Tsarina perhaps for my readers today. It was a part of history I didn't know so much. The making of Europe through the Napoleonic Wars is a fantastic. It's like a female sharp, but written with a lot of charm and a lot of heart. So I love it. What a lovely, lovely thought. I like that. That's wonderful. <laughs> And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? A book that I read recently and that I had to read very, very slowly because it was so strong and so touching in so many ways is, uh, again, an, an American novel and it's All the Light We Cannot See. And both the main characters the girl who's visually impaired. I can't remember, is she born blind? Does she yes. become blind later? Yeah. Yes. And equally, this German, very talented boy, who's a quintessential German boy, because he has all that huge propensity for beauty and for creation and for poetry and for knowledge in his soul. And at the same time, the only way to realize all his desires is to bond with the evil. In a way, he, he sells his soul in a Faustian pact because his only chance of education is to go to a Nazi academy and to witness, you know, the brutal demise of his best friend just because he's not as strong and he's not as hard as iron, not as tough as leather and, uh, and uh, 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 as fast as a greyhound, as, as, as the Germans used to say. 
that is terrible. And actually, that link through her uncle's very early podcast, you know, it's like an early version of a podcast he listens to, these explanations that come from Samalo and how they, in the end, they come together. It is just so beautifully written and so heart-rendering. It's a truly unique novel, I find. Alan Alpston, thank you so much for sharing your passion for reading and some wonderful insights into your two fantastic historical novels with the listeners today and for being a guest on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me and I hope that you love my girls as much as I do. Thanks again to my guest, Alan Alpston, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode. So don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to listen to another top author talking books. Meanwhile, if you'd like to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favourite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.